a black wave is coming for consumer brands, and they'd better be ready to surf it. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The old ways of advertising and engaging the consumer have worked for decades, but not anymore. We're too inundated with messages in too many media to pay much attention to traditional merchandisers. We're in a world that's being swamped by social media, and the only response for brands is to embrace digital marketing. Ad executive and business strategist Daniel Bryan Cobb calls it the black wave and includes the term in his new book, Surfing the Black Wave, Brand Leadership in a Digital Age. He joins me on the podcast today to explain how the digital age offers the only path forward for sellers struggling to reach fickle and distracted buyers. We'll discuss how advertisers can become story makers that entice consumers and how they can employ values to burnish their brands while avoiding the backlash that results when the public believes their message to be inauthentic. The very survival of brands is at stake. So here is my conversation with Daniel Bryan Cobb. Daniel Brian Cobb, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I believe that you have described the new era of digital marketing as dangerous territory or dangerous new territory for brands and advertisers. What is so dangerous about it? Well, the book is called Surfing the Black Wave. And if you know about Tsunami and the influence they have, people have terrifying thoughts of them. What's even more terrifying is when they do come they are black because of the soot being torn up from the sea floor when they're coming toward you. And that's the most terrifying concept. We describe the change coming in digital media in the way we engage brands and companies as a tsunami of change. And it is that significant. But we like this idea of surfing the black wave because there is a way to cause this tremendous change to be an opportunity. And if we take on the change correctly by, for example, a surfer would just ride the wave, wouldn't attempt to change the wave itself or stop the wave, but to use its force for an opportunity, then I think it can be a great opportunity. But if it's viewed as something we can prevent and we can stick with our core competency and do what we've done before but better, that's what's going to hurt us the most. And that's where the danger resides. Okay, well, let's put this in context a little bit. I believe in the book that you state or quote someone as saying that the golden age of advertising is coming to an end. What do you mean by that? Well, let's just use a little statistics to help describe what's going on. The advertising industry has always faced the question, and even Henry Ford himself said once, I know that half my advertising works. I just don't know which half, quoting John Wanamaker from the retail industry of years and years before that. We've always had questions about advertising, but the bigger shift now that's taking place is in the digital arena. Of course, the websites have been around since the 90s, but now we're seeing a new change in the way digital is interacting in the consumer space. For example, if you were to look at the use of Netflix and Apple TV versus broadcast TV, we lost 
half of our viewing audience in broadcast TV over the last decade. Our ability to reach the consumer through a TV commercial has been reduced. So if half our advertising didn't seem to work before, now less than half, we're cutting it by another half-life. And that's a problem. Where it's gone is to the social and digital spaces. But let's look at Netflix, for example. There is no advertising in Netflix. We can't buy an ad there. We can't buy an ad on Apple TV. Last time we tried to buy as an advertising agency, I work in the advertising business, we tried to buy on Hulu, and they were sold out for six months because there's just not enough space in the digital arena to reach the consumer the way we used to in television. Well, one of the strategies that advertisers have implemented in reaction to this is to go undercover, so to speak, with their ads, through stealth ads, through product placement, through so-called native advertising. But I don't think that's what you're saying here. I, I think you're saying that they can still be above ground, but they have to do it in a different way, right? Right. Well, there's a combination of the undercover model, which you see brands like Red Bull doing a great job. They're creating the content itself. And you're seeing shows like Into the Mind and other Red Bull-type extreme sports programming showing up on Apple TV and Netflix as some of the most highly rated programming. And people are saying things like, that's the best show I've ever seen. And they're telling people to shush during the middle of a TV commercial, which is a half-hour or one-hour documentary. So that's starting to happen as an undercover model. But in the social space, what I think it's really about is less about us trying to make a message to communicate with our consumers and more about being story makers, creating environments where we're doing things as brands that our customer wants to talk about us. And then they become the advertiser. They become the message maker. And all we're doing is enabling them with content to talk about. So it's a completely different model where in the past we could craft and recraft our story. Now we just have to do things really well, make ourselves very visible in doing that, and let the consumer talk about us. And they say that it's about 200 to sometimes they're saying 2,800 times more effective when a third party speaks of you. And that's what the social media space gives us. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talk about the production of shows. It's funny that we're actually going back to the age of like the early 1950s when advertisers oversaw and actually dictated program content. And they were kind of kicked out the door at a certain point. Now they seem to be back in, in, in droves. But I, I think the basic question, and I think I know what you would say to this, but I have to bring it up anyway because we are so inundated. I don't know what the latest statistic on how many messages a, a typical person sees in the course of a day. But does anyone pay attention to messages anymore because there are just so darn many of them? Think about this. You see 1,700 banner ads every month. Okay, I'm talking to your, your audience now. How many of those ads can you remember right now? Oh, boy. It would be almost zero. So that's the challenge we're facing as advertisers. It is an environment that is cluttered. We barely see that banner space, the space above the fold, the space to the right of the page. There's lots of noise there and flashing icons that we barely even notice anymore. We've become what we call banner blind. Yet in that news feed space, in the center news feed that's on our iPhone, or is on our Samsung phone, whichever your favorite is, that space right now is where we're trying to get as marketers. And you have to earn your way there. You can't just buy your way there. You have to be a part of the content in a way that the consumer wants to consume it. 
Well, here's what I see as one of the big paradoxes, and that is that I don't think that people really mind being bombarded by ads in every possible form imaginable. Like, for instance, I would have thought when advertisers started putting in ads before movies and movie theaters that there would have been an outcry and a pushback among moviegoers over that, and there was very little of that. So that now we go into a movie theater and we have to sit through 20 minutes of ads before a movie starts and we don't seem to care. On the other hand... We don't, maybe we're not paying attention to them. So we say, yeah, show us ads, but there are so many other, we just zone out. Again, I think you're probably not saying that. You're probably saying that to some degree we are paying attention. It just feels like we're not, though. Right. Well, advertising has always had to be entertaining to get your attention. One of the things we like to say is we'll give you 20 seconds of entertainment in exchange for 10 seconds of your attention, and that makes up a 30-second spot. It's always had to do that, but in the past, you had three channels, and you could run your advertising in those three channels, and the consumer was sure to see you at some point, and there wasn't a whole lot to switch from, and really the switch started taking place when the remote control came out for the television set, and we could very quickly move away from the content that advertisers were spending millions on and just click from content to content to content without ever seeing an ad because as soon as the ads would come up we just turn the channel again what social and digital does is it gives us another level of that and we're even getting options now where you can buy your way out of advertising whether it's spotify or itunes or these other channels that are developing they're saying well would you like the premium option would you like on youtube to buy your way out of seeing ads And in the consumer mindset, they're saying, okay, great, I can avoid ads altogether. This is a new option. And that audience that's moving away is really, it's scary that that's the audience moving away because they are the ones with the dollars. They've got the discretionary funds to say, I'm going to buy my way out of advertising. But they're also the same consumer that buys our products. They're the ones with the biggest dollars to buy our products. So they'll take the advertising in a different in a different way without maybe even realizing it. Right. With that new customer, we're going to have to get their permission. We're going to have to say, are you okay consuming this content? And is it entertaining enough to meet your standard that you'd be willing to not pay us off, not block us out, and not avoid us in your content consumption? What is the outlook for brands in this era of digital marketing and with the black wave threatening to engulf us all? I'm wondering because customers today seem so fickle. I wonder if the very notion of brand loyalty is is uh, jeopardized and uh, whether or not brands can survive in this new age. Well, it's going to move from what I'm calling brand loyalty to platform loyalty. Uh, let me give you an example of that. When the pizza industry started creating online ordering apps and Domino's and Hungry Howie's, who we worked with to launch their app. At first, nobody was ordering online, and it was all about who has the better pizza, who has the better brand. And people would pick up the phone and call whichever that was. Once we introduced the Hungry Howie's ordering app, people started saying, well, it's easier just to click reorder on my button here than it is to call up whichever brand I feel like having at the moment. I'm going to go with convenience click my Hungry Howie's ordering app, and what happened was 67% more often uh, would these buyers come back, and they'd spend up to 30% more because they had this app and it made them convenient. The companies, for example, the independent pizza chains who did not invest in this, they're losing 10 15% per year on average in, in gross sales, where the companies who develop these platforms are gaining by the same amount. And there's a really big shift going between the platform owners and 
those who did not choose to participate, those who did not ride the wave. That certainly is the entire business model of Amazon, this uh, one-click purchasing, ease of customer experience. Why go anywhere else? Why look at other websites? If you find it on Amazon, all you got to do is press one button, right. and you bought it, right? Right. This, here's a question I like to ask my friends. Name the number two online retailer after Amazon. What I would think of, I would think of a brick-and-mortar with, with an online experience like Walmart or Target right. or something like that. Not a right. pure e-commerce uh, site. Right. Second but how many of us think of Walmart first when it comes to online purchasing? And yeah, that shows you the power of what these platforms deliver. Amazon has got my credit card online. It's got my mailing address online. It's, mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, on my app, I don't even have to sign in. I'm just going to click a button, find what I want, order it, and I'm done. And that convenience, once you're on that platform, brand loyalty goes away and platform loyalty replaces it. Okay, well, in that era of platform loyalty, let's talk about what brands can do to burnish their brand reputation. For instance, you talk about a purpose-driven brand. What is a purpose-driven brand? So there's brands that make you feel. There's brands that connect to that sense of, I believe in this brand because it identifies with who I am. Think about Coca-Cola. Every time there's ever been a taste test done, Pepsi versus Cola, and it's blind, Pepsi wins to the tune of around 60%, 70% of the audience always says, I prefer this flavor of brand X and brand X becomes Pepsi. Once you reveal and you uncover the cans and the consumer looks at what they've just chosen, they are horrified with their own choice. They say, oh, no, 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 I was wrong. I didn't mean that. (laughs) I didn't mean it. I'm a Coke drinker. I like Coke much better. Mm. And then strangely enough, you do another taste test Same style test, but you just allow people to see the labels. You see the Pepsi label, you see the Coke label. People will switch their answer completely over and reverse it to 70, 80% of them will say, I like the Coke. I like the Coke much better. Yeah, I knew I would like it. I like it. And Mm -hmm. some people originally suggested that this was just simply because people had decided they were going to like it, so therefore they did. But in actual studies and learning what's going on inside the consumer brain, We've learned that there is something tangible of seeing that Coke logo and then feeling the flavor that's coming into your mind, and your mind processes that, and it says, I like this overall experience that Coke delivers. And Mm -hmm. that means that the brand, the logo itself, changes the flavor of the Coke. And it's because we feel things. We see things. We see the Coke brand, and we say, that brand stands for something good. Uh, Coke and a smile. I'd like to give the whole world a Coke. We remember all of the impressions of branding throughout all the years of how Coke was meant to refresh us. In well, everything a century, a, a century of image making. I mean, right. that took a long, long time right. to get to that point. Uh, but here we have, if you're a new venture, if you don't have 100 years in order to build your brand, um, what do you do? Well, it's about the values. The reason Coke connected with us is because they connected with our values. When we connect with other humans, it's not because we like the features and benefits. We can say, well, I'm six foot two, I have this many credentials, I like that you got this grade, and people are not impressed yet. But when you start talking about your values, you say, well, yeah, I've got five kids, uh, I grew up in my hometown because this is where I love the people I know, and uh, I work this job because I care about my employees. All of a sudden, the features and benefits are thrown to the wayside, and we choose to like this individual because of their values, because of their purpose. Brands mm-hmm. are people, too, in that way. 
brands are identified where we say, does this brand, i.e. Apple, stand for innovation in a way that I stand for innovation? Do I identify it with their values? And if I do, then that's the brand I buy. If Coke is the brand that stands for diversity of community and a smile and friendship and the community I live in, well, then I'm a Coke drinker. And regardless of the taste, I'm a Coke drinker because that's who I am. But the moment you start talking about values, then you start talking about this landscape of landmines that you describe in your book under the term of danger zones. Right. You talk about religion, race, gender, marriage, and you you seem to be advising companies to kind of stay away from those. And yet, is it really possible if you have values, you're going to step on those at some point one way or another? Absolutely true. And this is where we look for the values that are common to us all. Keep in mind, when you're online in the social media, they could care less about your price point, your ABS brakes if you're a car manufacturer. They could care less about your other features. But if you say, for example, with Hungry Howie's another example from them, during the month of October, we're going to make all the boxes pink and donate a percentage of our sales to breast cancer research and breast cancer care. Now the consumer is going to share off the charts. They're going to say, I, I like this brand. I like what they stand for. And we saw a quarter million Facebook fans share and like and celebrate Hungry Howie's during that month, where when we said it was free pizza, they could care less. They didn't share it with mm-hmm. anybody. And that's, that's a free pizza. But, so okay. what we've learned is the consumer wants to talk about your values. So what do you talk about? Do you talk about your political position and lose half your audience? Well, hopefully we can find values everybody can stand behind. Cancer. Who is going to say, I don't like this organization who's trying to help out people with cancer? Who's going to say, I don't believe in Starbucks when they say they want to help their employees have a better work experience and they want to treat their, uh, grow their beans in a community where they're going to take care of their workforce? These are the kind of values that are u- universal. Mm-hmm. And these are the values we can talk about. But is there a danger to, I wonder to what degree consumers can spot inauthenticity. Uh, Take as an example Budweiser, which for an entire year decided to change the name of its beer to America. Mm. Uh, Now, that's the value that most of us, if not all of us, share, a belief in our country and patriotism and the like. But really, a beer? I mean, is that going to sell your beer or is that going to create a pushback saying, come on, guys, don't do this to us? Well, I think that's the importance of when we say values, we mean values. You you can't simply say, let's pretend to have values. Let's Mm -hmm. pretend to like the people we're selling our stuff to. The consumer is very aware, and we are intelligent beings. We have the ability to decipher inauthenticity. Uh, Millennials are heightened to it because they see so much of it. So the only way we're really going to ever be effective is when we see a selfless brand value in the marketplace, where it's clear that that brand stands a lot to lose by bringing it up, who may Mm -hmm. even stand a revenue reduction by making the choice they're making. Uh, Let me give you an example. Tom's Shoes. For every pair of shoes you buy, you get one that goes overseas to care for some kid who can't even go to school because he doesn't have shoes, and they won't let you in the school without shoes. Well, when that owner comes in and he says, hey, I'm going to start a company that actually solves this problem, and it's going to cost us a lot of money, and I'm going to take a risk that we can still make money at this. The consumer says, okay, I buy it. I think you mean business, and we're going to back up your brand. And that's when it works. When it doesn't work is when you're Pepsi and you come out with a campaign where a police officer during a large public protest has handed a a Pepsi, and that's somehow (laughs) going to solve world problems. 
Well, it was nothing like the Coca-Cola campaign back in the 70s that we all remember. It was very inauthentic. It had it was a it was a march without a cause. They never named the cause. They never had a value. They just simply said, "We're going to end all the the struggle and we're going to have world peace because of a Pepsi." Well, that's assertion. That's not values representation. Mm-hmm. That's taking no risk at all. And the consumer wants to see you take a little risk. Yeah, well, it's nice to know the consumer has some powers of of, of perception and being able to tell the difference. Um, we're going to be running out of time pretty quickly, but I would like to ask you if you could give us some tips. You talk about building customer relationship networks in the new era of digital marketing. What do you mean and what are some tips on how we can go about doing that? Great. Well, we've talked a lot in marketing about customer relationship marketing for years. And really all we've meant is a direct mailing list or an email list. And so a you loyalty track program. Customer, a loyalty program, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where now those lists are becoming real time, and we're using tools like Salesforce, and we're using mobile apps, and we know every purchase a customer makes by the minute, every decision they're they're making about other products by the minute, and we now can communicate with them. So, with for example, back to the Howie's app, when they have a mobile ordering customer who always buys two medium pizzas on a Friday night. Now we have a behavior opportunity to connect with them. And when they miss a week, we can kind of throw out a, a promotion to them to remind them that, hey, we're still here. And we can have a real-time engagement with them one-on-one. And so customer relationship networks is about real-time engagement with millions of people versus in the past it was mass marketing to the millions. And direct marketing had to pick one message and send that one message to maybe a 1,000 people you could afford to mail to. Now you can reach millions of people one-on-one with individualized messaging that relates to their lifestyle, their timing, and things that matter to them. So when advertising reaches them, it's not pizza promotion on a Monday when we know that customer will never buy on a Monday. As long as you're not abusing the privilege. I mean, I have been in the, myself in, in the situation where I will sign on with some type of company, and then all of a sudden I'll get two or three emails a day from them, right. and I'll have, to, I'll have to start blocking them. There has to be some middle ground where you have that customer relationship, but not to the point where the customer is starting to get angry, like, please leave me alone. I, I take it back. I don't really want to hear from you after all. You know, Right. So. And, that, and that's one of the things we talk about is your values have to come out there as well in the way you approach the customer, not to extract from them, but to add value to their life. If you're able to give people moments of experience that are beyond the, the purchase itself, then that moment becomes special. It becomes meaningful versus annoying and in your face. And it's got to be not too often. It's like a conversation. If you overload the conversation with all the words and you don't have dialogue, people don't like talking to you. Well, advertising may be broken, but it sounds like you've come up with a good crazy glue for fixing it uh, in the new era of digital marketing. Uh, The book is Surfing the Black Wave, Brand Leadership in a Digital Age. My guest, Daniel Bryan Cobb. Dan, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We will link to your book and how our listeners can get it in the show notes to our episode. Thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you. You have a great day. That was my conversation with Daniel Bryan Cobb talking about the plight of consumer brands in the age of digital marketing. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. 
Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.